If you have a Bible this morning, we're going to take a reading from the second epistle of Peter. So, 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 9. Again, 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll begin our reading in verse 1. says this, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring unto themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved into judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation, and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. That'll conclude our reading this morning, and that's reading Second Peter chapter two, verses one through nine. And the title of our message this morning is derived from the last three verses of our reading today, and particularly from verse eight of our scripture reading. It says this: "For that righteous man dwelling among them." And seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The title of our message this morning is, When the Righteous Are Tormented. When the Righteous Are Tormented. Pray for me this morning that I could, um, oftentimes whenever I get up here to preach, there's all these things that are in my heart and I don't know how they're going to come out. And a lot of times they come out like a shotgun and just kind of randomly everywhere. And that's certainly how I feel to some degree this morning. I have a lot in my heart. But you pray the Lord will bring out only what he would desire to be said today. And that it would be for your good and his glory this morning. Um, A few weeks ago, I was, uh, I think I was driving somewhere and um, just thinking. I don't usually turn the radio on too much. Um, and a thought crossed my mind about our, uh, the generation of friends that I have and the various people that are my age with children, and um, I thought about the generation above me, and 
the question came to my mind, can I, how many couples can I think of whose children are fully engaged in the work of the Lord? Um, I said that very particularly. I didn't say go to church, because that's pretty easy to do. But I mean that their hearts and their lives are set to live their life for the Lord. And to be honest, I had to think for a little while about it. And finally, after some thinking, there were some different people that came to my mind. And I found that very disturbing. Because I would think of people that I look up to or people that I grew up with and how much devotion that they showed to the church, how much commitment they had. And then one after one, there would at least be one kid, sometimes two, sometimes all their children, who just wanted nothing to do with coming to church, wanted nothing to do with serving the Lord, or did so to please parents, or to avoid phone calls, or whatever it might be. And um, naturally, my mind went to our children's generation. Uh, In Indianapolis, before we came down here, we had a pretty big group of of tight-knit friends whose kids were born around the same time. And, uh, you know, I've watched those kids grow, and um, different ones of them play little special parts of my heart. And I know you all have experienced that same thing with different ones you grew up with. And um, the question kept coming to me, which one do we want to lose? Which kid, which kid's okay to just say, eh, when I think of my four children in the climate today of church, if we're just playing the odds, at least two of my children will not be in church in 20 years. More likely to be three, with the hopes that one is really devoted to the Lord. That's very vexing to me. Really vexing to me. Um, I I shared with you a year ago almost now. Let's see, it would be a year ago today, actually. Um, I had four burdens for the church. And one of them had to do with our young people. And that still rides very deeply in my heart. And I'm sure you can tell because I talk about it a lot. Uh, and will continue to as, as, as long as the Lord allows me to. Um, but it distresses me when we see this group of kids up here singing. It's, it's, it's a sad thought. But that's the thought that often goes through my, my mind. Is which one of them will not be here in 20 years? If you're a parent here this morning, think about that. Think about your children because two generations in a row um, have not had a good, not a good percentage. Now, the natural temptation is to begin talking about the world. And all the problems in the world, but I would contend that that's not the biggest reason why our children don't come to church. Um, I don't think it deals with the world. I'm not saying that there are anomalies and 
There aren't unique situations to some families and people, and I'm speaking in generalities this morning, but there is a cause and, reflect relation, a cause and effect relationship that can happen here and within our homes that lead to certain things. And um, in this verse of Scripture, in this chapter, in this book, um, Peter is doing something very interesting in this book because in verses 12 through 15 of chapter 1, the Lord reveals to Peter, you're almost done. You're about to die. Now again, I often retranslate the King James because I think when people read the King James, they just hear words like tabernacle and they don't really process what he's saying. He's talking about death. He's saying, I'm about to put off this tabernacle. Or in other words, I'm about to die. And the Lord had revealed that to him. And he came in verse 15 of chapter 1. And he tells us, in lieu of me about to, being about to die, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. Again, the way that sentence is written is just kind of confusing. He's saying this. I'm about to die. The intent of my letter is to drive something home that you'll remember after I'm gone. And Paul speaks that way. And your loved ones speak that way. Everybody speaks that way that has any principle or sense of Christian duty within them at all. As they get to the end of their life, they see things more clearly. They have a much deeper understanding, if for no other reason than their natural concerns are 100% gone. They don't care anymore about the stock market. They don't care anymore about the condition of their home. Or It's all gone. And they're thinking what I would contend for the, some people the first time in their lives rationally, spiritually. We'll put those two together. Spiritually rational. They're really thinking clear. And Peter here is trying in his dying breaths to pass a message on to the people. The same group of people that he had written about in 1 Peter. So you know he cares about these people because he is making every attempt to leave behind these precious truths. And you can really break down chapter 2 and chapter 3 into two parts. Chapter 2 is he's talking about deceptive behavior. That there are these false teachers who have come in among these churches or that were going to. And they were going to deceive them by false practices. And then the third one was through, or chapter 3 rather, is false doctrine. And he states in the beginning of the book, but what I'm doing is trying to help you to grow spiritually to face these things. And he begins by in chapter 2 saying, God has this wonderful ability to judge the unrighteous false prophet, those people who are trying to destroy the cause of God, and even though God's people may live among them, at the same time that he can destroy the wicked, he can save the righteous from among them. And he is marveling at God's amazing ability to preserve the truth in godly people, whereas at the same time, levy destruction upon the ungodly. 
Now, when I think of our nation, if I'm being frank, that's forthcoming, it would so seem. Judgment is, I would almost say, inevitable. I don't know how anybody could ignore or think that God will ignore the pervasive unrighteousness that is, runs rampant in our culture and think God is going to overlook us. He's not. When that is, how that is, I don't know, but I know that if things don't change, which a heart of repentance does not seem to be something that is uh, uh, naturally within the American spirit at the moment, despite many of God's attempts, I believe, to break our hearts and to call us back to him, unfortunately, we've taken those droplets of grace and we've used those to just further deepen us into unrighteousness. Which would suggest that destruction of some sort is coming. Judgment is coming. And I think that there will be two types of Christian people vexed by the situation. You see, right now to live in America, if you're a spiritual person, this is a vexing place to be. This is a hard place to live. If you're spiritual. Now, I would argue, and I don't mean this in a mean way, I would argue that most Christian people aren't spiritual. I'm just being honest. I think you know that. Most Christian people in America today do not have their highest affections and priorities set upon the Lord, His church, His people, and seeing that lost people hear the gospel. That's why for many Christians, this is an enjoyable place. Because it's prosperous. And prosperity is comforting. Prosperity to our flesh feels great. I've always discussed when I go to Africa, it's, it's one of the most strange experiences that I have, that I've ever had. And every time I go, it's this really strange experience. Because frankly speaking, I am miserable when I'm there. Sharon Bill Lewis back there, some things about that today. The food, the climate, the lack of air conditioning, the, the roads, the culture. There are so many things that the smell. I mean, I could go on and on listing almost everything you can think of is miserable. And then there's the opposite side to it. There's the spiritual side. I've been there and 40 people have been on the altar. Asked Brother Samuel last time I was there, so if I was to go to a street corner and just start preaching, would people listen? He said, oh yes, a lot of people would stop and listen. Now, I've done that there and I've done that here, and let me tell you, the result's a lot different. (laughs) Right? You go here and you get all the stares and the looks and the mockery, and you do it there. And You know, I went down to Belize here recently, as you all know, and uh, felt... Brother Monty had asked me to come and do some teaching, and I desired to go do some teaching more than just hold revivals. And here's what I was so refreshed by is that as I got up and taught, most of my days, the next couple days, were filled with questions. People would come find me and say, you said something yesterday, and I have a question. 
And they weren't random factoids that, you know, as Paul tells Timothy, to get in these ministers' questions, genealogies, things that really don't matter. That's not what it was. It was really understanding the heart of the truth, whereby they could practice it. Refreshing. Really refreshing. Have you ever seen somebody get saved and maybe somebody close to you and they're zealous and they're really want to know more and they start coming to you with questions? Doesn't it bring life to you? Isn't that such a... You especially see it in young people who are somewhat naive to the uh, standard ways people act. You know, they, they, they get saved and they just, they're just beaming. And they have all these questions. And it's so refreshing when you're around that. And would you not agree with me this morning that America is largely void of that? And it's vexing. Um, kids today. Kids, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something a little hard to you. Having passion about doing things in the church for the Lord instead of hesitation and resistance. Do you recognize that you get to serve the Almighty God? And Paul told Timothy, don't despise your youth. Don't look at your youth as though it's a disadvantage. But rather, capitalize on it. That you might be able to be an example to the unbeliever. I want you to know this morning that I, when I was a young teenager, and especially my older sister, when she was a younger teenager, she capitalized on her youth in a great way, and more people came to church with her from the time she was 13 until 18 than what I would estimate anybody or everybody at our church put together brought to the Lord's house. Why? Because her friends and the people she could have an impression on had no bias against it. Had they weren't rooted in their ways, they weren't, as the Bible says in Ecclesiastes, the evil days had not come, the hardening of the heart had not come, and she had an eagerness to do evangelism, and it was very effective, and many people came to church, got saved, some of which stayed in church, and some of which at least, in the very least, they got saved. And if the rest of their life is a wash in in regards to the glory of God for all of eternity, that effort my sister made to bring them in was worth all of it. I think there's a lot of reasons that cause young people to be hesitant to serve the Lord in the church today. But listen, when you're in the Lord's church today, be passionate about what you're doing. And I would say that they don't do that in part because we don't do that. They're seeing an example That's why it's important, and I'm I'm getting off my text here a little bit, but I feel the need to share these things. When we sing, let's sing. You know? Because the kids next to us are watching. And to whatever commitment and whatever energy and passion we have for that, we'll be followed by them. And in the same breath, when I go to a football game and my son sees me cheering and yelling... Where is his passion going to be found? In the area where his father's passion is found. And if their genuine passion is seen in me or for the things of the Lord and for the people of God, their passion will be there. Their excitement will be there. 
I hope our young people feel free. Little, God bless a little Will that comes up here and sings. I mean, honestly, God bless him for doing that. God bless Brother Aaron Binion for the way he sings. Takes you back, doesn't it, when he sings? Whoa. Isn't that better than the alternative? I mean, don't we have a God worth singing to in which setting the example to our children for that, hey, let's sing out to the Lord. Let's allow the gratitude in our hearts to make its way out. And I'm not just talking about singing. I mean, every act of service, young person, listen to me this morning. Let God have praise. Ignore the people around you and either the enthusiasm or lack thereof have and give your glory to God. Here, it's distressing. It's distressing. You know, in, in Africa, got these drums and I mean, they beat those drums to a pulp. It's so loud. About five or six people are on stage and they've got the, the they're, they're swallowing the mic and they're just singing tambourines and every sort of it. It's coming from here to there. It's a lot, right? But over the last number of times I've gone there, I've gained a deep appreciation for it too. I don't care for the style, but I care that they get lost in the worship of the Lord. I think we could learn something from that. But here's my point. That's what makes serving the Lord for a spiritual person a difficult place in America. You've had pastors get up here. You've had preachers get up here and say all these things, haven't you? And say, we need, we need more commitment and care. Consistency. And that's the hard thing. Does it translate? I think if we're all honest, the answer is rarely. Rarely does the word of God translate into heartfelt action, commitment. That's why America is a difficult place for the gospel and for the truth. We ought to be an exception to that right here. I'm going to be the way God made me irregardless of what our culture thinks. Oh, and I can't help but think when we get to heaven, there's going to be a little bit of a a flip from what people expect. People may snicker down here, but I can't help but think that when God rewards him up there, there won't be snickering. Because there's a commitment to it that is, I would say, enviable by us all, or ought to be. This morning, here, this is talking about a man. He gives us this example, Peter does. He actually gives us three examples, but we're going to zone in on one. And so he's talking about how God is going to judge and destroy, but he's also at the same time going to preserve the righteous. And he notes in the midst of this, the very last example that he uses is Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And it said in there that Lot's soul was distressed. He was vexed. This righteous man's heart was vexed day after day. We told you at the very beginning of the message there are two types of people I'm afraid of that are going to be vexed when God determines to judge them or judge our nation. There's going to be two types of vexed Christians. One of those is going to be like Lot and one is going to be like Jeremiah. 
Both of them were vexed by the reality of the the circumstance they were in, but for two very different reasons. You see, Lot was vexed in his heart because a series of decisions that he made led to a series of circumstances that he absolutely hated. And day after day, much of his vexation, I believe, was due to the knowledge, I did this. This was me that made these decisions that have led to this result. Jeremiah was vexed because he was called to a purpose. And part of his purpose was to proclaim the message to a difficult people who wouldn't listen. But God, listen to me, was going to bring hope and purpose to his despair. In other words, God was ultimately going to use the vexation and lamentation and pain that Jeremiah felt for the good of future people. And so there was hope in Jeremiah's message. There was even hope in his life. And God gives him that hope in Jeremiah chapter 33 when he tells him about there's coming a day where I'm going to vindicate all of your suffering and pain in a future generation. With Lot, there was no hope. And I believe it was due to, and we're going to look in the book of Genesis, and I think we'll see very clearly, it was because Lot was vexed because of his decisions. Not just because of the sin of Sodom. Let's go back, if we go back to Genesis chapter 13, what do we find? That God had blessed both Abraham and Lot with great abundance. And the Bible teaches us a consistent principle throughout, to whom much is given, much is required. God had blessed both of them with great abundance and he had called Abraham to go out to a place where he didn't know he was going and to serve the Lord. Lot went with him. And in the midst of going out, you know the story, they had herdsmen. Their wealth was largely in in animals and livestock. And their herdsmen could not get along. And so they determined, okay, we've got to separate from one another because this isn't going to work. And so Abraham looks to Lot and he says, you go up and you decide whatever direction you go, I'll go the opposite. And here's what Genesis 13 tells us. I want to read this scripture here. So here's what, he's got this decision to make. Now, this becomes the most consequential decision of Lot's life right here. I would argue this. You know, he was, he was Abraham's nephew. I taught all seniors in high school when I was a teacher. And I loved and I hated that position for the same reason. And here was the reason. When a kid was 18 years old, and if you're approaching that age or just past that age, I hope you'll hear this. You're about to make dec- decisions about your life the which you have no idea how big those decisions are. I mean, from 18 to 22 or 23 years old... You are, for most people, firmly planting the direction you're going to go forever. How you're going to raise your children. All of those things transpire largely when you're making this decision as, what am I going to do when I'm no longer under the direct authority of my parents? When I have some autonomy about my decisions. And that, in large part, I'll be supported at least some degree where I'm going to go. And so... Inevitably, there would be kids that I'd get a chance to talk to and, and try to help guide and give advice to. I remember one particular girl, one of my first years of teaching, that she was a really bright kid. And she wanted to go out to California to do her undergraduate because she was going to medical school. And out in California, the school she was going to was going to cost fifty dollars or $60,000 per year. 
I ask her, well, have you got any scholarships? Have you got any? No. So you're just going to borrow it for your undergrad. Yeah. So I did my level best to talk her out of it. Everybody else was celebrating, you know, all of her family. And because it sounds so good. It looks so good to the carnal eye. It sounds adventurous. And so when you go around the room in a senior class and you start asking people, what are you going to do? For somebody that says, you know what, I'm going to live with my parents at home and I'm going to go to a local little community college here so I can get my under. That doesn't sound exciting to people. But if you say, you know what, I'm going to go out to California. and I'm going to Sounds all great. But usually it's not as great as what it sounds. I tried to talk her out of it. She wouldn't listen, so she went. Two years later, she came back and visited the school. You know what she did? Mr. Hicks, thank you. I should have listened to you. You're the only person that gave me good advice. The implications of her decision, she had no idea at that moment. I, I would bet she's still paying off those loans today. Right? Young person, sometimes because of the way our culture functions, you have to make all these important decisions at a young age. Let me tell you, you are not up for the task. A 40 or 50-year-old adult is not up for the task of those kind of decisions. That's why a lot of times older people have a hard time making decisions. Because they look back at the decisions they have made and seen they've gone different ways each time. If I could give you a piece of advice, it would be seek all the help you can get when trying to make a decision. Here Lot stands up. The Bible says this. He looks one direction, and he looks the other direction. And listen to what it says. He lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, if thou comest unto Zoar, then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. So what did Lot do? He used his eyes, and he said, that looks really good. I'm going that direction. But I couldn't help but notice in the text, Moses writes and he says, this was before God destroyed Sodom. So let's rewind for just a second. At this moment, when Lot is standing up there and he's trying to decide what to do, and he has all of these valuable things with him, and he's thinking, why is it important that he even use the words well-watered? Well, all of his wealth is in what? Livestock. So he looks that direction And he sees this potential to grow his wealth. Hey, if I go this direction, it's all well watered and I can become more successful. I can become more wealthy. I'm going to take my livestock and I'm going to go this way in hopes that I can expand my wealth. But what God knew was that that direction, God was about to rain down all of this destruction. And Lot was a righteous man who could have depended upon the Lord and sought guidance from him, but rather chose to trust his eyesight and go the direction of his own choosing, much to be that was going to be the greatest mistake of his entire life. I wonder after that how many times Lot looked back standing upon what I envision as this hillside looking that direction thinking man if I could just go back to that moment. Man if I could just change the direction from right there. None of this would have ever happened. And yet in life you don't get a mulligan. You don't get a do-over. Very often things in life when we make those decisions that's where they are. 
lot goes that direction, you know. But God, I believe, at the same time, we have Abraham. Listen to what the Bible says about Abraham. Abraham's given the same decision. He's able to choose which direction he goes, but God speaks to him. And yet God speaking to him did not make it seem by the natural eyesight that it might be the best decision. Listen to Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 8. It says this. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should receive, he should after receive for inheritance, obeyed, listen to this, and he went out not knowing whither he went. You see the difference in the two? The one uses his eyesight and says, this looks really good. I've got this really ornate plan to prosper me naturally. Abraham has the same level of wealth, perhaps even more. God says, I want you to go out. I'm going to bless your life if you live in accordance with what I've revealed to you. But I'm not going to tell you exactly where you're going to be going. Oh, what are some of the differences between Abraham and Lot? Well, let's consider what happens next. Lot goes into Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible says in the, what was it, the 15th chapter, I believe it is, an important story happens because Sodom and Gomorrah are attacked and they're enslaved by a neighboring kingdom. And while they're enslaved in a neighboring kingdom, Lot is there and all of his wealth and all of his family is there. And he needs rescued out of this. And so what does God do? God sends Abraham to go with some other herdsmen and they come and they rescue Lot. Now, I look back at that situation and I can't help but think that perhaps God is trying to speak to Lot. You're in this wicked city and God has caused judgment to come down. And instead of staying there, Lot, why wouldn't you recognize the signs of the time, recognize this is not heading anywhere good. I'm going to escape from this situation, and I'm going to go somewhere else. And very often, especially at places in life about where I'm at, or just a little older than me, people have lived enough of life. They've gotten married. They've had a job for quite a while. They've had children. And they start experiencing some of the consequences of poor decision-making. And they have this choice to make. God gives them an opportunity to make an escape from those decisions. From stopping to pursue the natural blessings and begin to set their life and heart upon the affections and the things of God. And they have this choice. I think of a a young lady who gets in a relationship with a young man. And she's dated him for three or four or five or six years. And she knows he's toxic. She knows He's going to hurt. He's just bad company. But she feels like she's committed too far now. So she's got to keep going. I've counseled a lady like that. Run. Run. Count your losses. Most don't. They can't humble themselves and take the loss. They stay. And you all know how the story ends. They get married and then they introduce children into it. And then now it's a generational effect. Here, Lot, I believe God is giving him in Genesis chapter 15 this chance to escape. Lot stays in Sodom. And then what do we find? Well, we find later on that it's said in 2 Peter chapter 2. As things grew worse, 
his spirit was vexed day after day after day from seeing the sin of Sodom. I think part of that vexation had to do with what it was doing to his, his children. I can almost guarantee that's part of it. You know why? Think about in that very 19th chapter, you know, a lot of attention gets given to God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, but let's consider what happened after that too. Right? Sod- Lots escapes. He loses his wife. He loses his wealth. He loses his sons-in-laws. That's steep enough price to pay, isn't it? But it's not over. He goes out into this little community. And listen to this. His, his two daughters had been raised in one of the most perverted cultures of any culture described in the Bible. So guess what was in, infected their minds? The same perversions. They witnessed, somewhere else in the scriptures it talks about how that they witnessed the sensuality or the licentiousness, I believe is the King James word, of Sodom. And it vexed his heart. His children were raised in that pervasive uh, situation. And so they grew with this perverted, distorted mindset about a lot of things. And so there they are. They're, they're sitting in this little community and Sodom and Gomorrah has been destroyed. And what are they worried about? Well, my father won't have an offspring. And so they commit incest to, I mean, how perver- even naturally speaking, is that not just a perversion that makes you recoil? But how do you think that their minds got so accepting of that perversion? If it wasn't from having dwelt for so long in such a perverted culture. Lot gets there. He loses his wife. He loses his children. Or excuse me, his sons-in-laws. He loses his wealth. And then he has to live with the perversion of his daughters doing what they did. And the effects of that being Moab and the Ammonites become the enemies of God. Their children then become some of the greatest obstacles in God's, in God's people all through the Old Testament, or at least through the period of the judges. Here's my point. Lot makes this decision, and its impact is not just his children and his grandchildren's generation, but it's dozens of generations in the future. His poor decision, trusting in his sight, allowing the drive for wealth and attainment to govern him, And then Lot, the Bible says, is vexed by that. Well, you don't say. But what was his vexation? It's in the state of what he could have possibly prevented. I perhaps live in too much fear of that. If I'm being quite honest with you, I worry about my children a great deal. My four little precious boys, I worry about the the children of this church a great deal. I worry a lot more than what I ought to. But much of that is this. I don't want my decisions to be the thing that is, like Lot, presenting a, a, offering a life to them that is one they shouldn't go down. No, I want, I want my home, my actions, my character, the values that I instill in them to be one that sets them on the path of Abraham because we can't help but compare the two, Right? Abraham says what? I'm not going to seek wealth. I'm going to go to a desert because why? Why did he go to a desert? Simply this. He didn't know. God told him to. 
So that's what he did. He walked out and he went to a desert. Now, let me ask you this, this question, parents. If your kid came to you and said, Dad, I feel like the Lord doesn't want me to go to college. Do you know that would be groundbreaking in some people's homes? Earth shattering. And their parents would do everything to talk them out of that decision. I'm not saying it's the right one, but here's what I'm saying. We don't worship the Holy Grail of higher education. What I'm more concerned with than what my kid is going to do is what the Lord has told them to do. And if my kid in good conscience has been saved and can say, I've really prayed about this a lot. And I know that they have for this reason. I've prayed with them. Right? That's what a good parent would do. That's what a, let me say this. That's what a godly parent would do. Is they would recognize that right on the horizon is this decision well above their kid's ability to know what to do. And that, yes, you can go and give them tours of campuses. Yes, you can expose them to every uh, trade under the sun. Yes, you can show them the benefits of being in the military. But listen, none of that is equal to God revealing to your child what they need to do in life. Because what God knows is that they enlist in the military, perhaps two weeks from now, we're about to go to war, and they're going to get sent over there, and they're going to die in the first skirmish. God alone knows that. And so every reason to justify all the benefits to being in it, God alone can lead them. Abraham followed God wherever he would lead him to go. So he went out into a desert. God blessed his offspring, didn't he? Beyond an innumerable amount. And we find in the scriptures, and we've talked about lately, when Abraham depended on himself, it caused problems. When Abraham depended upon God... It blessed him and all the generations that followed after. And here's what it did. It set an example for all these generations. Don't you recognize why Abraham is heralded as the father of faith? Is because his faith is the type of faith God wants in you. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, or we could go into these people who as we mentioned, Jeremiah, their vexation came because they were doing what God called them to do and people were rejecting it. Not because they weren't doing what God called them to do and they were paying the consequences of it. I am afraid. I mean this with all sincerity. I mean this with as much love in my heart as I can. I, I am afraid there are going to be people who look back their life in deep regret because they chose the well-watered plains where Sodom was at. But let me ask you this question. You, those of us that are raising children that are still in our home, when you're 65 years old and your children are grown, would you rather than be sitting in here Or working down the road on Sunday, making a great big living. So let me ask you this question. What are your actions doing to ensure they're here and not there? And do they perceive that that is the motive behind what you're doing? Do you have those discussions with your children? Do you say to them, the, in private, you know, you can say it publicly like this and you can testify about it and that has somewhat an effect. But you know it has a really big effect? 
is when you set aside everything that you have to do, and when you're putting them to bed at night, when you're going in and you're, you sit down next to them and you tell them. You, you say to them, listen, I, I know I've been grumpy lately. I know that I've pushed you in this lately and I've pushed you in that lately, but I want you to know at the core, here in a minute, we're going to bow down and pray next to your bed. And I am praying that God uses you for his glory in this life. Have you ever said that to your children? This is hard to swallow, but here's the truth. And you're probably not a spiritual Christian in the day that we're living in. Because a spiritual Christian has their sights on the spiritual things, not the carnal. When I was a kid, and I'm going to close with this. When I was a kid, um, I'll say this. When I was a kid, I perceived the decisions of the parents in my church. I did. I perceived it. I saw it. And I deduced how much they valued the things of God compared to things of the world based upon it. I want to encourage you this morning. There is going to come a day where there is vexation in you. Jesus himself was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But joy comes in the morning for those whose grieving is part of God's calling for them. You can trust. You know what, Lord? I know this is for a reason. What I don't want, and I look around in fear, and I see all these older Couples here, and here's something too blunt. In 10 years, many of them won't be here. And in that same 10 years, perhaps many of our young people won't be here. Right now, God has given us this tremendous opportunity. And every Sunday, and every Sunday night, And every Wednesday, and every revival, and every vacation Bible school, and every minister school, and everything, and every Thanksgiving service, every Christmas program, every caroling, God gives us this privilege to show our children by example what's important. Let's not waste it. Are you in the middle right now? Is your life too busy? You know, one of the things that's amazing to me is um, sometimes in my mind there are things that are untouchable, things that I could never do. Um, an ex- a quick example is not coming to me, but things that I have put up there, are, I'll give you an example. One thing that when I used to work, I really prided myself on not taking a day off work. So as your pastor, I still do the same thing. Right? I will not miss a Sunday morning. That's the attitude of my mind. So I can tell you the three times I've missed here and how much they, even when my son was born, it bothered me. Right? I thought, I, 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 I kind of have to miss for that because my wife would kill me, but ah, right? But in my mind, missing was just, it's just not appropriate. It's not acceptable. I've made that an untouchable, but in truth, it's not. I've just made it that way. Right? 
I know you all well enough to know if there was a reason why I needed to miss, it'd be okay. But in my heart and mind, it's an untouchable. Now, I think a lot of times our decision-making is governed by things that we have elevated to being untouchable when they're really not. I've got to do this at work. My kids have got to participate in this at school. I've got, miss, I've got to go to do this. Do you? Or can you start drawing some boundaries and changing lifestyles and changing people's expectations of you out here and instead start meeting God's expectations? Now here's what will determine the effectiveness of this message. Does the word of God lodge in your heart and change you? Or is this one of those that you can write down in your Bible and say, here's another one where the ground was impalatable to the message. My prayer for you all and for us is that God would make our hearts palatable and responsive to the gospel. I pray that if you need some priority changes, God would bring them because, listen, vexation will come if you don't. And I bet you would pay a whole lot of money. All the money you made those days, I bet you'd give it all back if your children were in the house of God with your grandchildren worshiping with you. I bet you'd give it all back, wouldn't you? If you don't think so, Ask the people in here that that's their, that's their situation. Because we got plenty of them. And I've heard from many of them the lamenting. I wish. I pray today God would use his word um, for your good. I always, um, I want it to be for your good. And not to make me feel good. I've seen preachers get up before and tell people off and it makes them feel a little better. Get it off your heart, get off your mind rather, not on your heart, off your mind. I hope you can perceive this morning that's not the intent at all. It's because of these little sweet kids that we saw singing up here and 10 years from now, where this church will be, we're in a very vulnerable position. Very vulnerable position whether we see it or not. And I pray that God would speak to our hearts and not just to our minds here today.